0: Hi, my name is Amanda Panacea, and you're listening to the Healer Revolution podcast. This is a community for self-healers, biohackers, practitioners, and any other helping professionals. You're in the right place if you're seeking conversations about how pain becomes passion, the connection between physical, energetic, mental, and our spiritual self, Finding your body's ancient wisdom, the latest biohacking technologies, clinical research, and if you just want to nerd out about complex biochemistry and quantum physics. But this is also for entrepreneurs who seek infinite abundance and a supportive community. So pour a cup of king coffee or cystus tea and let's join the revolution. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Healer Revolution podcast. I am your host, Amanda Panacea, and today we are talking about all things neurofeedback with Toby Passman. Hi, Toby.
1: Hey, Amanda. Thanks so much for having me on the show.
0: Yes, thank you so much. And we were talking before this, we're both in Miami. So I really like to hear your story, how you got here, where did you grow up here? Or there's this meme that I always see. It's like, what childhood trauma brought you to Miami? <laughs>
1: That's funny. I have not seen that before, but I haven't even <laughs> thought about that. But <laughs> interesting. Um, yeah, but no, I I'm not from here. I grew up in Eugene, Oregon, uh, Track Town, USA, and you know, good. Spent the majority of my life in Oregon. Went to college there. So really, you know, I struggled a lot, kind of growing up in high school, even middle school, with a lot of social anxiety and awkwardness. So that was really my you know, kind of a personal interest that I started taking in, you know, reading pop psychology and neuroscience books, just learning about how the brain works, you know, feeling like I was a bit neurodivergent and wondering, you know, what was going on with my brain and how, you know, how that all takes place. So that kind of led into um, studying in college. I started taking some psychology classes. But what really caught my attention was a class called biopsychology, where we were learning all about how the brain functions on a chemical and electrical level. So I was really fascinated by that, you know, kind of hard data. I like psychology, you know, the the theoretical aspect was, you know, sometimes not exactly what, uh, what I wanted to study. I was really, you know, wanting to get in, you know, implement kind of the, the hard science as well. So I think that's what really drew me to, to biopsychology. And that led me to start working at a research lab in college where we're actually measuring people's brainwave data. So that's a technology called EEG or an electroencephalogram, which is basically a swim cap looking device that sits on your head. You uh, The technician squirts some gel into all of the electrodes And then you measure the recording on a computer. So you see the the tiny little squiggles, which are indicating the electrical activity of the brain. So that's what I got into in college in research, just measuring and analyzing, you know, what people's brainwaves were doing as they were going through a computerized task that was measuring uh, their levels of generosity. So they were going through this computer game where, there were a variety of different situations where they could either choose to keep or give certain amounts of money to a fictitious charity. So it was measuring how people's brainwaves changed as their emotions shifted and, you know, looking at what was happening when people were getting into, you know, a generous state. So that was super interesting. But really, you know, kind of to answer your question about what led led me to Florida was, Really, bringing um, the the opportunity to work for a neuroscientist, uh, basically get mentored by him, um, Dr. Nicholas Dogris, who's one of the top neuroscientists in my specific field of brain mapping and neurofeedback. Um, but he was uh, he's the uh, neuroscience director of a uh, rehab clinic out in Deerfield Beach. So kind of the opportunity to come work for him and get mentored by him. I never even heard about Deerfield Beach before. I just knew it was somewhere close to Miami. So I figured, you know, what the heck? I wanted to get out of the rain and gloom of Oregon and decided to pack everything up and move cross country. And that was that was sort of the start of, you know, everything that has now evolved into what I'm doing. Awesome.
0: Yeah. And so you mentioned brain waves. Can you kind of briefly go over what are brain waves and why are these beneficial to measure?
1: Yes. So basically if we back up and first understand that the way our brain works is both on a chemical as well as electrical level. So most people are a lot more familiar with the neurotransmitters, the the chemicals that our brain uses to communicate, such as dopamine, which plays a big role in motivation and reward, or serotonin, which is really important for mood. But then there's also the flip side of that same coin, which is the electrical signaling of the brain. So neurons communicate with one another um, utilizing electricity, and we can actually measure those tiny little electrical rhythms with a swim cap-looking device called an EEG cap. So the reason that a lot of you know, neuroscientists actually measure the brain waves instead of the neurotransmitters is that you would have to do a spinal tap to actually accurately measure the levels of different neurotransmitters in the central nervous system. And a spinal tap is going to be pretty hard to, to get people to volunteer to do that. So because of that, a lot of research has been conducted instead on measuring the brain waves. And the brain waves are basically measured based on their frequency. So there's slower brain waves, such as delta and theta, that are more so involved in sleep. Those are uh, a lot slower. Usually one delta is usually one to four cycles per second. If we compare that to on the other end of the spectrum, gamma waves, which are associated with peak experiences and expanded consciousness, gamma is usually around 40 40 plus Hertz, 40 cycles per second. So it's a very fast wave. So all of these different brain waves are running in conjunction with one another. We're never just in a certain state you know it's it's kind of like when we talk about like hormones like both men and women have testosterone and estrogen it's just the balance of you know men having a lot more testosterone and a lot lower estrogen you know and women being the opposite so with these brain waves you know when we're sleeping we're predominantly producing those really slow deep brain waves whereas when we're in an alert awake state we're predominantly producing the faster uh, brain waves associated with focus and concentration But really, the reason that people should be interested in understanding and being able to optimize their brainwaves is because these really control and dictate our thoughts, our emotions, our behaviors, and our overall state of consciousness and the health and wellness of our nervous system. So when brainwaves are balanced, we usually feel good, we feel happy, um, we sleep well, our mood's good, whereas when brainwaves can become dysregulated... A variety of different things, which we can talk about. But when people have dysregulated brain waves, that's when they're prone to anxiety, depression, emotional reactivity. Oftentimes, when people have tr- have had traumatic brain injuries or a lot of neural inflammation from toxins in the environment or you know different kind of uh, toxic exposures, that can cause a lot of neural inflammation, which then dysregulates the brain waves. But really, you know, a, a healthy Optimized brain is going to have really precise, optimal levels of each of the different brain waves at the correct area of the brain. Um, for instance, say with alpha waves, alpha is one that you, generally is healthy if it's produced towards the back of the brain. Um, then that's really important for calming our nervous system down. Whereas if we have a lot of alpha at the front part of our brain, that's oftentimes associated with uh, depression, with brain fog. Oftentimes, like chronic cannabis consumption, will cause that pattern of frontal alpha. So, there's a lot of complexities and nuances to the brain waves as far as you know what we're producing, uh, in which state we're in, and and which area of the brain that's all going on.
0: Yeah, that's really helpful to understand. Like, it's not like your whole brain is just producing one type in any moment. There's different areas that will need to be producing different types.
1: Right. Exactly. Yeah. I think that's a common uh, misconception when mm-hmm. people think, oh, I'm in an alpha state. You know, when people say that, it's like, okay, their brain may be producing a lot more alpha waves in comparison to a normal kind of beta brain wave pattern. But, you know, they're all, all five of the major brain waves are working in, in synchrony at all times. It's just the proportion and levels of, of each brain wave that are occurring that really dictates how we feel.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it makes sense because there's um, I do a lot of techniques that are that help you to get into those lower brain waves uh, so that you can the goal is like rewiring your brain. Is there some science to this?
1: Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So that's really, you know, a big part of neuroplasticity, the brain's ability to change and rewire itself. You know, there's there's multiple different things that are taking place. When someone's brain is changing you know we could talk about it from a blood flow and brain oxygenation standpoint usually modalities that are going to help improve the brain are going to drive more blood flow and oxygen to the brain we can also talk about it from the standpoint of neurogenesis which is the brain's ability to grow and create new neurons and new connections amongst those cells that takes place mainly in the hippocampus an area of the brain really important for learning and memory and then we can also think about it from a neurotransmitter standpoint. You know certain uh, medications or psychedelics are going to alter the levels of different uh, neurotransmitters, which is going to affect neuroplasticity. And then also we can think about neuroplasticity in the sense of the brain waves when the electrical rhythms of our brain change, whether that's the result of meditation, breath work, psychedelics, uh, exercise, you know there's so many different ways that our brain waves change. But when that's occurring, that literally is the rewiring of our nervous system. And oftentimes, like to your point of getting into those slower, deeper brainwave patterns, that really activates and taps into the subconscious mind, which we now know, you know, predominantly neuroscientists estimate that only about 5% of what's going on is, is at our conscious awareness. You know, I always think about the the tip of the iceberg, you know, kind of uh, image, talking about consciousness, where it's like that, that tip that's poking out of the surface of the water is that 5%, whereas like 95% of our overall consciousness is taking place below the surface. So when we think about that in terms of the brain waves, you know, we're predominantly in a beta brainwave pattern throughout our waking day. but beta is really just our conscious mind. It's that analytical thinking, problem solving, you know, a lot of what's needed just going about our day-to-day lives and executing tasks in the world, but really what's driving a lot of our behavior and habits, all of these things are really subconscious, things that we've, you know, sort of uh, habits or beliefs, um, things that we've learned about ourselves or stories we tell ourselves um, about the way the world is, about the way we are all of this is operating subconsciously at those slower brainwave frequencies. So when you use modalities, such as like what you're talking about, where you slow the brain waves down, that really enables people to shift some limiting beliefs and behaviors that can be really difficult to do consciously. You know, people try years and years of talk therapy and they, you know, maybe understand their problems really well on a conscious level but that doesn't necessarily change the fact that their subconscious is still driving all of this behavior and really sabotaging their efforts to improve. So, yeah, I think that's why, you know, such as something like psychedelic therapy or tools like meditation and breath work or hypnosis can all be so powerful because they're really getting the brain into that, you know, subconscious and a deep brainwave state, which is then allowing us to kind of create these new thoughts, these new ideas, beliefs, and really rewire our brain. So there's tons of advantages of getting into those slower brainwaves. Although one caveat, what I should mention is that you don't want to always be in that state. Yeah. People who are always in that state, that's actually characteristic of ADHD, where we see an excess of theta brainwaves waves which causes people to feel foggy, they can't concentrate, they're, you know, emotionally reactive. So, you know, it's really about also kind of oscillating in and out of different brainwave patterns when it's needed. So, being able to enter into that alpha theta brainwave pattern when you're doing some hypnosis or meditation, that's really advantageous. Whereas if you're trying to study and or, you know, read a textbook, you really want to predominantly be able to produce a lot of those faster beta waves.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. And what I always tell people is by doing some of these techniques that get you into the slower brain waves, it's like you come out of this logical, rational mind and you kind of are able to see the truth that is inside of you that's hard to access without being in that state. Like when you're just doing talk therapy and you're like, this is what happened and this is how I felt. But when you kind of get into those deeper brain states, this is where you can find like your truth that was hard to uncover before that.
1: Right. And I think adding on to that, I would say like on a, on a neuroscience level, you know, when we talk about like, say the default mode network, which is really, you know, this network in our brain that's operating most of the time, you know, throughout our day, that's that, you know, analytical mind that's kind of creating these stories about ourselves about other people you know and it's very very much like segmented where it's not this unified kind of uh you know consciousness or feeling that you know it's it's very much a, a feeling of division comparing ourselves to other people comparing ourselves to our you know our past self being very judgmental critical and a lot of people struggle with those thoughts you know all day every day so, really, when you get out of that, when you're able to deactivate the default mode network, which is something that you know when people take a psychedelic like psilocybin or LSD, that dramatically reduces blood flow to the default mode network, which then leads people to like experience the world in a completely new way where they feel this you know unity and and wholeness that and and more of this uh, perception of the world as it is in in my opinion rather than what our minds kind of all the stories and things that we create that aren't necessarily true but mm-hmm. you know i think that's just an example of when people are in that state they're they're very much able to see um you know how all you know how how the default mode network and all of our thoughts can really actually really you know cloud our consciousness and what's really important
0: mhm yeah So have you been doing um, research with people using psychedelics with your neurofeedback? Like, are you, do you have research that's out there or a book or anything like that?
1: Yeah. So um, currently there's not a ton of research actually utilizing neurofeedback in conjunction with psychedelics. There's like one research paper that came out pretty recently talking about uh, microdosing psilocybin with neurofeedback and it seemed to have promising results. So it's definitely something that's needed to to replicate a lot yeah. but in terms of you know brain mapping where you you know actually just measure the brain as it's you know getting into an altered state say with psychedelics i've d- definitely done a good amount of that and there's been a lot of research published looking at uh, ketamine lsd mdma so i've been able to actually measure how people's brain waves change as the result of these different Uh, you know, taking these different drugs. And it's definitely not, uh, it's not a very, like, say, for instance, like, if you take a drug like caffeine, there's a very predictable way that the brainwaves are going to change, you're going to see people get into a lot more beta. And that's, that's pretty, pretty universal. Whereas psychedelics, you read research studies about, you know, how people's brainwaves change, and in one study, it'll say ketamine increased theta waves, and the other study says ketamine decreased theta waves. And I think this mm-hmm. just speaks to the fact that you know each each psychedelic experience that we have is unique, you know, in its own right, and then also at how everybody responds to a psychedelic. I mean, people could experience um, you know intense love and joy and empathy for other people. Someone else could also experience deep terror and. And anxiety. So it's really interesting to measure the brain as it changes during psychedelic experiences, but it's a very complex and and tricky to really, you know, nail it down precisely.
0: Interesting. That's really fascinating. <laughs> and so yeah. let's get, let's get into some of the ways that your brain can become dysregulated. Like what are some of the big offenders you see that are like, do not do this. This is very bad for brainwaves.
1: Yeah. I mean, I would say, you know, the most common thing, you know, is just chronic stress. So when we're in that fight or flight response, our, our brains are pumping out a lot of cortisol and adrenaline, these different neurotransmitters or hormones that, you know, prepare us to fight or flight or flee. So, That's advantageous in the short run if there actually is a a real danger, you know, but our brain kind of responds that same way that it used to when there was a saber-toothed tiger chasing us as it does now when some, you know, when our boss yells at us, for instance, or we get in a fight with our partner, our brain still responds with that, you know, kind of life or death response as a protective mechanism. So that's, you know, that, that when that gets out of line, when people our state basically stay stuck in that chronic state of fight or flight that really wears the brain down. It really wears the nervous system down. Um, chronically high levels of cortisol actually decrease um, the activity and blood flow to the hippocampus as well as prefrontal cortex. So areas really important for learning, memory, focus, mood regulation, um, and Activity increases is in a different area of the brain called the amygdala, which is like the fear center of the brain. So, you know, people always talk about the good side about neuroplasticity, how, you know, our brains can rewire themselves and change and improve for the better. But there's also the dark side to neuroplasticity, which is when we experience chronic stress or even acute stress. If someone, maybe they're going through life and they feel, you know, they haven't dealt with any mental health issues. But then they experience a super traumatic event. They go to war and uh, they you know come back and they've experienced some really traumatic things, then that neuroplasticity is sort of working in the wrong direction. Their brain, you know trauma can really wire our brain uh, very quickly, you know, in a negative direction. So that, I would say, you know chronic stress as well as acute stress in the form of, of different trauma, uh, different traumas is is something very commonly seen to dysregulate people's brain waves. Um, the other uh, big thing that I see is past head injuries. So even though a lot of people that I talk to, you know, I'll ask them the question, have you have ever had a head injury in the past? And oftentimes people will say, no, no, like never. And then, but if I probe a little bit further, they'll like mention, oh yeah, like when I was when I was 10, I, I did fall down a flight of stairs and, you know, it was unconscious for two minutes or, you know, stuff like that. People just kind of forget about from the past, um, really can play a big role in how their brain functions at the present moment. So, you know, past head injuries, some people are able, their brains are more able to recover from, whereas other people, you can still see evidence with a brain scan. You can still see evidence of past head injury. That may have occurred a year ago, five years ago, even ten or twenty years ago, um, depending on you know how severe it was and the brain's ability to uh, to change. But the the problem with you know conventional medicine, you know, if someone experiences a head injury and goes to the neurologist, usually they'll just have like you know maybe an MRI or CAT scan that measures the structure of the brain. So that's usually intact. You know, if someone has a really severe head injury. that'll be maybe there'll be a brain bleed or something that they can see a hematoma something that they can see on one of those scans but for the most part when people have you know what's called a mild tbi which i think is is kind of a misnomer in the sense that you know these head injuries or concussions um are you know cause a lot of symptoms but neurologists don't really do anything about it they'll just tell people you know go home get get some rest you know, avoid, avoid doing anything really mentally engaging. So there's not really that brain rehabilitation. So that's why some people, you know, they're able to, you know, go back to being fully functional. Other people notice a lot of different changes. And a lot of clients tell me that, you know, they come to me because they haven't been the same ever since they had a specific head injury say like five years ago, they started having mood swings and sleep issues and all these other things that are the result of, you know, the brain being impacted, uh, you know, from, from these like physical insults or physical traumas. So that would be another big one. And then I would say toxins, you know, environmental toxins, such as mold is a, is a big, you know, cause of inflammation for a lot of people. I dealt with mold, um, you know, my freshman year of college and witness firsthand, just my cognitive abilities went to, to zero. I mean, practically I, I could barely have a conversation with someone and I couldn't focus or my memory was completely shot. So things like that, mold toxicity, I think a lot of people don't even know that, you know, that the reason they're experiencing symptoms is because of something in their environment, but a lot of people I know also deal with like heavy metals or just chronic inflammation as the result of a sedentary lifestyle, not exercising enough, or just eating a lot of you know inflammatory foods like seed oils, sugar uh, for people who are sensitive to dairy uh, or gluten. All of these different things cause, you know, a kind of chronic inflammation in the body as well as the brain. And when the brain is inflamed, people's brain waves are gonna become dysregulated and not really be functioning optimally so those are those are some of the common culprits that I'll see.
0: What about drugs and alcohol?
1: Drugs and alcohol? Yeah, so working at that rehab clinic for sure, definitely it's it's really interesting how you can almost see you know people self-medicating. They're kind of trying to correct, you know that biological imbalance through the okay. use of some external substance. So it was actually really interesting to see how people who had deficiencies of the faster brainwave, say their their brain was stuck in a really slow state they would gravitate towards stimulants like methamphetamine or cocaine whereas people who are highly anxious high strung um, would you know tend to favor alcohol or downers and and in the short term that can be an incredibly effective strategy you know (laughs) those drugs are gonna really calm you down or really you know stimulate you but in the long run that oftentimes really exacerbates the problem that was there in the first place. So like chronic alcohol consumption, basically people when they're drinking, uh, when we think about it from like a neurotransmitter standpoint, the levels of GABA, our main inhibitory neurotransmitter really increase. And then the levels of glutamate, our main excitatory neurotransmitter really decrease. So it's this double whammy where the brain has way more inhibition and way less excitation. Now, the hangover that people experience the next day is because that balance of GABA and glutamate is completely reversed. The brain you know, got the signal from drinking that it doesn't need to produce any more GABA. And it gets the signal that because the glutamate has been reduced so much that it needs to upregulate its production of glutamate. So then the next day after drinking, people oftentimes report feeling a lot of anxiety or just You know, physically kind of like on edge, which is because they've tanked their levels of GABA and their levels of glutamate, which when it's produced in excess can actually become neurotoxic, have gone way up. So, you know, that's just the short-term effects of alcohol. But then when that occurs on a you know, kind of a chronic level uh, for a long period of time, those imbalances in the neurotransmitters and brainwaves just become more and more severe. So I'd honestly just with my experience doing this and, and working at the rehab clinic, I feel like, and also actually taking a psychoactive drugs class in college where it was almost like the, the main point of the whole course that uh, was taught by a neuroscientist who was, who was actually the, uh, the woman who led my research lab. And the whole course, the, the it, uh, thesis was that alcohol is actually probably the most toxic out of any substance legal or illegal. I mean, even compared to opioids, which, you know, can be very addictive and people can overdose, but in terms of actually causing toxicity to brain cells or other, you know, organs in our body, I think alcohol is probably the absolute worst substance that people could possibly consume yet it's legal and (laughs) one of the most prevalent. So Yeah, I think alcohol is one of the one of the biggest, also one of the biggest culprits. That, well, you know, when people's brain waves are dysregulated from you know chronic drinking as an attempt to self medicate their stress or sleep issues, but then it really oftentimes just makes those problems way worse.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I worked in um, psychiatric hospitals and detox facilities for many years, and I was just like why do we not use some of the, these techniques, like looking at brain waves? um, And even like in the hospital setting, you know, we have children who come in with like extreme changes in behavior and uh, sensory presentation, and they'll get an MRI and it'll be perfectly fine. And I'm like, we need, we need this kind of technology, like neurofeedback technology in these facilities. Um, Why do you think that it's, not really in any facilities or hospitals yet?
1: Because neurofeedback can't be made into a billion-dollar drug. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I think, you know, being a bit facetious, but I think in reality, you know, there's not a billion-dollar neurofeedback company. You know, neurofeedback (laughs) does not have the money in it that, you know, an expensive, you know, I don't know, the companies that, you know, create MRI machines or other kind of fancy diagnostic testing. But, you know, I think that's probably a lot more profitable than people doing neurofeedback in which they're potentially able to actually really get to the underlying issue that's causing their symptoms. And after doing a round of sessions, whether that's 20, 40, or even 60 sessions, they might not need any you know medications in the future, they might not need to continue, uh, you know, being treated for for whatever it is. So I think that our healthcare system is, you know, they talk about it kind of being a sick care system where the healthcare system benefits from people, you know, staying and remaining ill. And I I don't think you know that doctors are like bad people for the most part. I don't think that the the people actually in the healthcare system necessarily. Uh, you know, are trying to keep people sick, but I think the way the system is designed is is really in a way, you know that that takes advantage of people being sick and profits from that. So if neurofeedback can actually, you know, get people to not be sick um, and improve their mental health without needing to be on a drug for years and years, you know, there's there's going to be a lot of people that are not going to want that to happen. So I think that's, that's really the reason or a big, big part of it, you know, because neurofeedback has been around since like the 1970s about, yeah. <laughs> and EEGs have been around since the 1930s, but most people, you know, have never, I, I talked to, you know, an average person on the street and, you know, they've never heard about brain mapping. They've never heard about neurofeedback. Mm-hmm. So it's really, you know, a, a matter of these modalities, not making their way into the mainstream and i think a lot of it you know is is political
0: yeah and you know they still do ect ect is really popular and right. i'm like how do we have this but not neurofeedback it makes no sense
1: right right and that's it's funny cuz it's like you know the the neurostimulation technologies that i work with you know the ect for people that don't know you know electroconvulsive therapy when people think of like one flew over the cuckoo's nest, you know, yeah. uh, like just that it's crazy that that actually is still a treatment. Right. And it actually very can popular. <laughs> very, yeah. And it actually like for, for severe, like intractable depression, some people actually can experience relief, but they're also likely going to experience memory loss and a slew of other side effects because it's hitting the brain with a huge amount of electricity. Somewhere between like 600 to 700 milliamps. So in proportion, comparing that to like, where neurostimulation, the field of neurostimulation, how it's evolved, um, you know, today there's low intensity neurostimulation called tDCS, which is transcranial direct current stimulation, or tACS, which is transcranial alternating current stimulation. And these technologies are also running an electrical current through the brain. So people can be very scared when they hear the term neurostimulation, but these modalities are operating somewhere between one to two milliamps of electricity compared to 600 or 700 milliamps. So it's the difference between causing a complete, you know, shock and seizure to the nervous system versus, you know, mildly guiding and in training the brain. To create healthier patterns
0: yes so let's talk about what even is neurofeedback you kind of touched on a little bit (laughs) yes
1: yes so neurofeedback is basically you know you can think of it as sort of holding a mirror up to your own brain our brain doesn't have any feedback on how it's doing so the way you can provide that feedback is hooking uh hooking yourself up or having someone hook you up to some electrodes that target specific areas of the brain. So for instance, we start off with a brain scan, we look at someone's initial brain map, and we see which areas are too active, which areas are um, underactive, and which areas are working optimally. And then we pair that with someone's subjective experience, what symptoms are they experiencing, or what are they trying to improve, whether that's their memory or their focus, or just, you know, peak cognitive performance. And then we're able to put together a personalized protocol that's going to target specific areas of each person's brain with neurofeedback. So whereas brain mapping is just measuring the electrical activity, it's not actually you know, doing anything to change it. Neurofeedback is basically a way to reward or inhibit certain brainwave frequencies. So how that's done is that someone's hooked up to these electrodes, Um, You basically um, kind of the the technician will kind of wipe someone's head off a little bit with an alcohol wipe, kind of clean those areas, and then we'll stick an electrode with a little bit of conductive paste on uh, certain areas of the scalp targeting specific brain areas. And then someone has some form of media. So the neurofeedback that I use, people can either be watching Netflix or some kind of streaming or they're playing a video game. So for instance, with the video game, when their brain is producing the desired frequencies, say for instance, we're working with someone with ADHD who has an excess production of those slower theta waves and a deficit of the the faster beta waves that are really important for focus and concentration. So a typical protocol with neurofeedback would be to reward a rhythm called SMR or low beta, which is the healthy kind of focused yet still calm and relaxed state, and then inhibit those slower theta waves. So in the game that someone would be playing on the screen, when their brain got into that state of low beta and decreased its production of those theta waves, the character on the screen would run faster and the audio would get louder. So providing the brain real-time feedback on when it's doing well, Versus when it needs to self-adjust. You still with me here?
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: Oh, okay. Your your video uh, is frozen. I'm not oh, sure. no. I just yeah, I just wanted to make sure I wasn't gonna keep going for a while there. Okay,
0: okay there it's better.
1: <laughs> perfect. Perfect. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, no worries. No worries. So, um, so basically, so on the screen, someone's gonna see, you know, when their brain is in that healthy state. In this case, this person with ADHD when they're Getting into a state with increased low beta waves and decreased theta waves, the uh, character on the screen will run faster and the audio will get louder. So that's providing the brain positive feedback, telling you know the brain, good job, keep doing what it is that you're doing to get the reward. Now, when the brain deviates from that state, people start mind wandering, they get into that hazy theta brainwave pattern, then they'll lose the reward. The audio gets quiet and the character on the screen slows down. So this is a way to actually tell the brain in real time within a hundred milliseconds, which is quicker than our conscious mind can even process information. So it's very much getting to the very root uh, subconsciously of people's brain activity and teaching their brain how to produce healthier patterns of these different brain waves. So there's so much you can do with neurofeedback um, because everyone has different levels of these brain waves someone that's struggling with ADHD, we might do that protocol that I just mentioned, whereas someone struggling with anxiety, they might actually have an excess production of those faster beta waves in which we might want to inhibit the, the production of those waves. So it's really dependent on what each person's brain map looks like along with their subjective symptoms and what they're trying to achieve. But that's how I design you know, a personalized protocol and then over the uh, over the course of a round of sessions, their brain becomes better and better at creating these different brainwave patterns. So it's kind of neuroplasticity in action there, where from the first session someone does with neurofeedback, their brain is starting to make these new uh, changes, these new uh, electrical rhythms, and finding this new pattern of firing of firing. But you know, it's it's difficult to create. Real, um, you know, deep biological changes within the brain. It's a process that takes time. You know, in the same way that getting into really great physical shape is not going to happen overnight. If you're out of shape, you're not regularly going to the gym. You're eating a lot of processed food. You know, it's going to be a process. People understand that. I think oftentimes when it comes to mental health, people are so used to popping a pill and instantly feeling the results that They could be a bit dissuaded from, you know, the fact that their first few neurofeedback sessions, they might not notice a whole lot, but usually, you know, if people persist with it, usually within three to five sessions, people will start noticing improvements. And then the reason that most neurofeedback uh, protocols are usually between 20 to 40, even sometimes up to 60 sessions is that the brain will try to revert back to its old dysfunctional patterns because the brain loves homeostasis, what it's comfortable with, even if that's dysfunctional. So in order to really um, go past that, uh, if you continue doing these sessions, it's like you're continuing to to get these neural reps where you're teaching the brain over and over how to create these new patterns and really hardwiring them in. And then once you've gotten up to that 20 to 30 or even 40 or 60 session mark, those patterns start, you know, those changes start becoming long term. And people don't necessarily need to continue doing more neurofeedback. Usually, if they're living a pretty brain healthy lifestyle, you know, they're going to experience long term um, changes.
0: Yeah, so it's, it's, when I work with people one on one, I usually tell them you have to practice this stuff every day, or it's not going to stick sometimes, <laughs> like it needs mm-hmm. to kind of Become very routine for you. So that's nice to know that, you know, even though it might take a while, it seems to be a little bit more permanent once you hit maybe 40 to 60 sessions. Um, But is there anything you recommend afterwards? Like, you know, obviously avoid some of the, you know, big brain killers and brain toxins we talked about before. But is there anything that people can kind of do to keep the changes?
1: For sure, yeah. I think oftentimes it's it's really the most basic stuff that makes the biggest impact. So things like exercising on a regular basis, you know, exercise boosts the levels of uh, BDNF, which is a protein that drives neurogenesis, that helps the brain create these new neurons and new connections. Uh, so things like high intensity interval training, I really recommend to people. Uh, Sprints—they've actually found specifically sprinting really is great for the brain by driving up levels of BDNF. Um, Things like fasting, you know, or following a ketogenic diet can be really helpful because when our brain is kind of constantly, when we're constantly having these big glucose spikes uh, from, you know, eating a lot of carbohydrates or sugars, that creates kind of a a toxic state for neurons. Uh, So much so that they have actually started calling Alzheimer's type three diabetes, because there's such a strong correlation between elevated blood sugar levels and you know, kind of neurodegeneration. But even in the short run, having these elevated uh, blood sugar levels doesn't allow neurons to function optimally. It's creating a state of chronic inflammation. So practicing fasting or ketogenic diet, or I've actually recently been playing around with uh, exogenous ketones like ketone esters, which can kind of get the brain into that state of deep ketosis without necessarily needing to fast for three or five days. But um, but I think that's a, a great strategy. Um, and then, you know, just eating what what people actually um, eat, you know, things I think it's there's no, no like one size fits all uh, diet for the brain, you know, but limiting things that you are, you know, getting inflamed from, and trying to incorporate usually more uh, healthy fats. So things like olive oil, coconut oil, dark chocolate, butter, ghee, you know, all of these things are going to really feed the brain, because the brain's actually made up mostly of fat. The myelin sheaths that surround our neurons and allow our cells to communicate are composed of fat. So by providing our brain these, you know, uh, these uh, fatty acids. It allows the brain to have optimal functioning and same deal also with protein is super important because the amino acids that you're getting from protein are actually creating a lot of these neurotransmitters that our brain needs to function. So things like, you know, dopamine is created from the uh, amino acid L-tyrosine, or we have serotonin that's created from um, uh, uh, tryptophan, you know, that we get uh, from food. So I think diet, you know, exercise, incorporating, you know, fasting, uh, can be hugely helpful. So there's not necessarily one thing I would say, but when people just generally are living a pretty brain healthy lifestyle, limiting things that are causing inflammation, you know, really trying to, you know, reduce it, if not eliminate things like alcohol or sugar. Um, they're going to be really, you know, those people that do that are going to see the most beneficial long-term results. Because neurofeedback, I like to think of it as like jump-starting the brain, you know, it's giving the brain, kind of getting the brain back into this optimal state. But if you're going to, you know, do these things that continue to create neural inflammation and you're still in an environment that's maybe there's mold or, you know, you're experiencing a lot of trauma, you know, the brain is going to, Kind of go back to these unhealthy patterns. So neurofeedback, I tell people, it's just a tool in their brain health toolkit, and it's a very powerful tool. But if you're not you know implementing all of these other kind of behavioral lifestyle changes, your brain is kind of gonna likely revert back to unhealthy uh, patterns,
0: yeah, agree. And I work with a lot of people who have some pretty severe immune imbalances. Like I had mast cell activation. I work with a lot of people who are sensitive to everything reacting to food smells, all of that. Um, And then also people with autoimmune diseases. Do you see neurofeedback as being beneficial for bringing balance to also some of these chronic immune conditions?
1: Mm, You know, it it's definitely possible. What I would think more so in those cases is a different modality called uh, brain photobiomodulation or red and infrared light therapy, where they've shown that this can actually greatly uh, decrease uh, the levels of these pro-inflammatory cytokines, which are driving you know a lot of chronic inflammation. So basically, where there's different devices, I work with like a helmet that people put on. Or there's also intranasal, as weird as that sounds, there's these probes that go into your nose, uh, as well as different like forehead uh, kind of band devices, but they're all delivering red and infrared light to the brain that's getting absorbed by the mitochondria, the power plants of our cells, greatly increasing cellular energy production and driving down neural inflammation. So I know they've actually done a couple, uh, couple studies showing evidence that Uh, photobiomodulation can be really helpful in decreasing the chronic inflammation from long COVID that's kind of resulting from these cytokine storms and also with with some different autoimmune conditions Um, because neurofeedback, I, I think of it more, you know, working on the brain kind of on an electrical level, even though other things are influenced like blood flow or the chemicals. But when it comes down to, you know, these inflammatory conditions, I think that a modality like infrared light therapy which is really targeting the brain on a cellular level uh, and reducing inflammation powering up the cell i would think is is probably going to be the more beneficial technology
0: mm, okay interesting so if like somebody was you know living in mold for a while and they've got tons of brain inflammation you would do that first before doing neurofeedback
1: you could do it um in that that order i mean I think there's there's different ways. I would I would say, you know, first someone you know getting someone out of the mold, kind of detoxing them, is going to be the the first priority. But you know, you can do the infrared light therapy. I like to do it prior to people doing neurofeedback. They seem to be really synergistic as kind of warming the brain up on a cellular level, and then doing neurofeedback to you know once the brain has more of this raw uh, energy it has more ability to rewire itself but um, in terms of you know cases where people have a lot of chronic inflammation that is really what people at neurofeedback conferences have been talking about lately is when people don't experience positive results from neurofeedback the number one reason is because of chronic neuroinflammation so being able to address that with a tool like whether it's a neurotechnology like infrared light therapy or taking binders or other ways to detox if someone's dealing from mold, that's going to be essential, um, either doing that before or sort of in conjunction with neurofeedback in order to really see ideal results.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, makes sense. Awesome. And so tell us about your programs. Um, I know you're here in Florida, but do you have any virtual programs that people could participate in?
1: Yes, I do. So I basically, neurofeedback's evolved to the point that they can actually just ship people devices. Um, They made kind of these EEG sensing headbands that connect to an extra electrode. So people can actually record a brain map on their own and then do the neurofeedback um, without ever actually needing to meet in person. So that's where I've really gravitated towards is doing this virtual option where I just send people the device, they hook themselves up and record a brain map. And then we have a call where we go through all of the results. We talk through everything. And then I put people on a personalized plan that involves brain-healthy nutrition, specific supplements and nootropics, as well as a personalized neurofeedback protocol, um, sometimes also incorporating other technologies like neurostimulation or infrared light therapy, uh, basically giving people, um, you know, a protocol to follow that's based on their brain scan. So, depending on which brain waves are dysregulated and which areas of the brain, we can then create this personalized protocol. And then people can do sessions on their own. We meet every couple of weeks. So, I do one on one sessions with people to review their neurofeedback progress and kind of talk through, you know, helping with implementation of these different recommendations. But for the most part, people can actually do neurofeedback on their own, you know, whenever, wherever they want, uh, which is a real game changer because going into, you know, have to do neurofeedback in an office two to three times per week for sometimes months on end, you know, can it takes up a lot of time, can also get very, very pricey. So being able to actually just do sessions on your own, you can get to that same, you know, 20 to 40 session mark you know, without actually needing to be in an office, um, but just doing those sessions on your own. So I really like the virtual option. Um, A limitation might be that it's not quite, you know, the comprehensive clinical equipment that we'd be using for neurofeedback in person. So, you know, we can recreate quite a lot of that, those same benefits with the virtual option. But I think in-person neurofeedback and utilizing some of these other modalities is still, incredibly powerful. So kind of still gonna, you know, do have both options, um, likely have a clinic in Miami next year. But, um, but yeah, I think for now, you know, people can really get really great results doing virtual. And really, for anyone, you know, people uh, have reached out to me that live in places where they really don't have any neurofeedback, you know, other countries, that neurofeedback hasn't really made its way to that yet. So I think, this virtual option can really spread neurofeedback to a lot of people that need it, that probably at this point don't even know that it exists.
0: Yeah, yeah. and do you take insurance? Do any insurance is cover it?
1: It's a great question. So I personally <laughs> do not because I'm not a licensed uh, mental health practitioner.
0: Mm-hmm. Um,
1: basically, if people, um, they, they're, it can be difficult. Uh, a lot of practitioners choose to not even bother with neurofeedback or trying to bill neurofeedback, because it can be very cumbersome. But for certain states, certain insurances will cover neurofeedback. For instance, Florida, I think Blue Cross and maybe Aetna, there's a few that that do provide coverage. Whereas if you go to like Georgia, there's no insurance coverage whatsoever. So it's, it's super difficult and challenging in that regard. But um, hopefully, you know, in the future, there will be more and more um you know coverage as far as insurance for for neurofeedback
0: Mm -hmm, yeah so i am a licensed mental health care provider i'm a licensed mental health counselor would i be able to get certified in neurofeedback
1: yeah so there's there's two like certifying bodies one for for neurofeedback um called pcia they offer a certification called the BCN or board certification in neurofeedback, which basically involves a didactic course, um, doing some mentorship hours uh, and then taking an exam. So it's it's a several month process. And then there's also a similar certification process for uh, reading and interpreting brain mapping uh, called a QEEGD uh, D or diplomat. So yeah, those, those couple, um, Light uh, the uh, certifications. Those are ones that I got while working at the rehab. And I think for people looking to do neurofeedback, uh, regardless of whether they would ever work with me or not, I would say you know, find someone who's board certified in those couple modalities. Because mm-hmm. you know you're not going to do severe harm. Uh, you know with, with neurofeedback, although you definitely can make symptoms worse. Neurofeedback practitioners that don't really know what they're doing who maybe just took a weekend seminar and are now doing neurofeedback, you know, you can train the brain in the wrong direction and actually make someone's symptoms worse. So yeah. I always just advise people to find someone who who is uh, board certified, ideally both in neurofeedback as well as brain mapping.
0: Yeah. That was my next question. Is there a danger to doing this at all? What are the risks?
1: <laughs> yeah. So neurofeedback itself is, is very, very safe since it's not, since it's basically just encouraging the brain to modify its own levels of brain waves. It's not providing any external stimulation or, or you know affecting the brain on an external level, really. It's just allow like kind of holding that mirror up to the brain, allowing it to better self-regulate. So in general, you know, people can experience like a, you know a mild headache after a session. They come in dehydrated that quickly resolves just with, with hydrating after a session. Um, And, you know, potentially it can sometimes bring some stuff up to the surface. If people have had a lot of trauma, they should definitely work, you know, be, be still doing it in conjunction with, with therapy, or, you know, maybe the therapist is able to provide neurofeedback because it can definitely bring some stuff up from the surface, but for the vast majority of people, you know, neurofeedback is not going to create any issues um so you know that's another another thing that people you know it really appeals to people is that you know you can get a lot of the same or you know if not more significant benefits than people are getting from different psychiatric medications but without any of the side effects and the long-term uh, repercussions um just you know in a completely natural and safe way with neurofeedback
0: Yeah, much, much safer than psych meds. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. (laughs) Awesome. So tell everyone where they can find you, how they can work with you.
1: Yeah, so I'd recommend, you know, everyone can uh, shoot me a message on Instagram at neuroflex, N-E-U-R-O-F-L-E-X, probably most active on there. And you can see some videos kind of showing these different concepts that we're talking about today. Uh, people can also go to www.neuroflex.tech. That's the website where they can read about kind of these different modalities and see our programs. But um, but yeah, if any of your listeners are interested, um, you know, I'd be happy to to offer them a, a discount, and they can just shoot me a message on Instagram, and um, and we can go from there.
0: Awesome, thank you. Of this course. has been. Yeah, this has been really insightful and I love learning more about the intricacies of the brain and our nervous system because it seems like it's, we're really on the forefront of understanding things like every year, it gets more and more intricate.
1: <laughs> Definitely. I think, yeah, and we're going to look back in, in 10 years and realize how little we yeah. we know right now, but but looking back to what we knew 10 years ago, it's it's incredible, you know, the, how far mm-hmm. neuroscience has come.
0: Yeah. And I always tell people that I work with, like, look, I I became a therapist and we didn't talk about the nervous system or the brain almost at all. So it is not your fault. (laughs) that This is not like something you were taught or understand. This is all very, very new information.
1: Right. Right. Right.
0: Awesome, Toby. Well, thank you so much for joining me. I look forward to hopefully doing the one of your programs soon.
1: <laughs> Absolutely. Yes, look forward to it. Well, thank you so much for having me on, Amanda.
0: Yeah, you're welcome. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Bye. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. I am just so thrilled that you're listening to the Healer Revolution podcast. This has been a huge passion project for me and super therapeutic on top of that, helping me to use my voice and connect with other like-minded individuals. So if you're enjoying the podcast, please like and subscribe. Please share on social media or with your audience or friends or loved ones. I truly appreciate it. It does take a lot of time and financial costs to run the podcast, and it is not a moneymaker, let me tell you. So if you are enjoying this, I would truly appreciate your support just by sending me a post, a like, and a subscribe. Thank you so much.